Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, this is Jose Ignacio Alfaro producer of Are We Still Talking About This? On this episode, Adam and Jessica speak with Allison Raskin, actor, writer, and co-creator of Just Between Us. Allison and Gabby Dunn's young adult novel, I Hate Everyone But You, depicts a young woman's struggle with obsessive-compulsive disorder. This episode features frank conversations about OCD, suicidality, and depression. Links to Allison's work, as well as resources related to the topics discussed, are found in the episode description. Enjoy! Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So happy to have Allison on the podcast today. We are going to talk about OCD. We're going to go right into it. Let's do it. For me, uh, it came on when I was four years old. So it's like kind of always been in my life. I had something called pandas, which is like where it's brought on by strep throat. So I like got strep throat. And then like within a couple of weeks, like my entire behavior had changed. And my parents thought I had a brain tumor because I was like a completely different person. I don't remember a lot of that because I was four years old. So I just know that I changed and I've recently kind of changed back. Like um, in the last year, I, or last two years, I've been back on meds and I've been doing a lot of work and I, I feel like I'm finally in a much better place and I, I don't feel like I have OCD anymore, even though I'm sure if we took away the meds and we put me in a high stress situation, it would, you know, flare its ugly head. But it is this interesting way to exist in the world because my life has been spent preoccupied with thoughts that don't matter. So it's like, you know, to obsess about cleanliness has been a huge thing for me and to not be able to like kind of just like sit on the ground the way people sit on the ground or um, I got a dog like three years ago, but before I got my dog, like I love animals, but I like wouldn't, I wouldn't touch dogs on the street because like that was contamination. And so getting the dog really helped me through that. And it's just a way, it's a different way of living your life. And it's also 
very different, I think, for every single person, like their experience of what OCD is. Right. Are there things that you do that are kind of gross that would be something that someone typically with OCD would not be able to do? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I'll do gross things and people will be like, don't you have OCD? And I'll be right. like, yeah, but it's an illness. So it doesn't make any sense. Like I do tons of gross things. Like my dog will vomit and I'll be like, oh, that's annoying. And then I'll like wait hours to clean it up, which is really bizarre and gross. Well, OCD is also not all about cleanliness. Yeah, the, they have the, no. the compulsions for different people can be mm-hmm. very, very different. Uh, so when your symptoms were their worst, uh, what was going on? In terms of like what is the most debilitating, I, mine is cleanliness based and then also um, like a, obsession and anxiety. So when it's at its worst, like you'll see in the way that it manifests itself, it will be like not feeling clean, needing, you know, not being able to be in places that are unclean, not being able to sit on a friend's couch. Like that's where like you'll see that like my actual behavior is, is different than others. And then in terms of like internally, a lot of anxiety, a lot of obsession around romantic relationships and not feeling complete without that, just feeling like I had to be working all the time. Like I, I kind of, this is a bad thing to say, but I kind of have like good OCD and then it always made me do things because if I didn't, if I wasn't always being productive, then I was being bad and then I was worthless and I was a waste of space. And so I needed to write 10 pages a day because if I didn't, then why was I, you know, what was I even doing? I'm pathetic. Not great ways to think about yourself and not something I would advise anyone to do, but it in a way like it helped me even in in the worst throes of it. I was always high functioning because that's how my OCD manifested itself. And that like, you know, for other people, it can be really debilitating. And like the thought of something will mean that they can't even get out of bed or that they can't even clean their room because like it's too much to take on. Whereas mine was much more like, well, I got to do it. I got to do this. I got to do that. You know, and then like but being just like so unhappy throughout that high function right i think a lot of people struggle with an idea that you alluded to earlier where where one grows up and they feel supported and they acknowledge that they're lucky and loved but then that doesn't alleviate thoughts of depression and so then there's that extra layer of guilt of oh my god everybody's i'm so lucky everybody's done everything for me and i'm letting them down by having this illness almost Yeah, that was a huge part of it. I mean, I grew up very, very privileged. I grew up like white and uh, in a nice neighborhood with supportive parents and like physically healthy. And so there was always, always a huge layer of guilt that I was still so miserable. And, you know, I think I think, again, what really helped was viewing it as an illness and not just viewing as me being a little piece of shit, which like, you know, I fluctuated between feeling that way. But like, I think the more that you can say, this is something in my brain, this is like, you know, you wouldn't be mad at yourself for having diabetes. Like that, that thinking I think can really help alleviate it. And I'm a huge proponent of like separating the thing from the way you feel about the thing, you know, cause like there's the thing and you can't control the thing, but you can completely control how you feel about the thing. And there's no reason to add that layer of, of, of sadness and guilt and like worry when, when it doesn't need to be there. And that's a learning process, but that I think is like a very specific goal that people can have and something that they can really try to work on. When did you get to a place where you felt comfortable talking about being on meds or having OCD? I was never not comfortable talking about it. 
So I've always been super open talking about it. And it was actually like, my dad was like, you probably shouldn't talk about this stuff, you know, if you want to have like a career and a job. And then what I did was I turned it into my career and my job. So, um, you know, obviously if I go on a different route and I'd like become a doctor or like a business person, you probably can't be as open, at least until recently, you couldn't be as open about it. Um, but for me, I, it's just I've always sort of been an open book. Part of that is my OCD that I can't really keep a secret. <laughs> like, I don't really know how to keep things to myself. Um, and so it's just always been me. And I think that another thing that really helped me was just like owning it. And, you know, if I was in a situation that made me uncomfortable, you know, like a lot of times on set, there'll be things that like make me uncomfortable in terms of cleanliness. And then I'll just be like, like I used to be on this sketch show for RIP full screen and it just was gross. Like they, the sets were like not clean and like, you know, so I would like take Clorox wipes and like wipe off the couch before I would do a scene on the couch. And like, I would just be like, I have OCD, sorry. And everyone was like, okay, <laughs> you know, you- instead of just like trying to hide the behavior or trying to like, you know, I, I've just been super upfront about it. I wanted to talk to you about like your relationship with the internet, with like strangers on the internet. Um, how does that affect your OCD? It doesn't. I think if anything, I'm just really happy that people seem to get some relief from hearing me talk about stuff that like there is some, you know, I think not everyone realizes how, you know, kind of common their experiences can be. And so I think like I've had a lot of people reach out saying that like it's made them much more okay with who they are and being open about who they are and um, sharing that part of themselves with their friends. And so that's been great. I think, you know, if anything, it, it's just like propelled me to to talk about it more and it's helped me, you know, get like be better and do better. That's good. That's nice to hear. Yeah. What was it like while you're going through school? Not great. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure my parents almost pulled me out of high school and also college. Um, I yeah. So those are my worst years was like senior year of high school and then um sophomore junior year of college were really tough years for me and again like super high functioning still went to class like still got straight A's and you know but was uh losing friendships like losing losing communities like dropped out of my sorority got kicked off of my improv team you know felt like very lonely and and not like I had a support system really outside of my family but kind of just like kept going (laughs) you know like I think that I'm really lucky in that my parents they made sure that I was never in like a super super danger area and then also I never wanted to be in that danger area because of them like I didn't want to put them you know I'm talking about trigger warning I'm talking about killing myself and I just like I never could do that to them um and so and they also were like very vigilant about like when I was getting towards that place, being like being aware of it, being there for me, you know, like when I was at boarding school, my senior year of high school, like my mom would come and pick me up every weekend to bring me home. And like, you know, I'm, I was very lucky in the support system that I have. And a lot of people do not have that. And, um, I say all the time that if I didn't have the parents that I had, I, I'd probably wouldn't, wouldn't be here right now. You, you know, like I've been in and out of therapy my whole life. And so there's been periods of time where I'm very defensive and where I do, when I do not want to be there. And with my current therapist, I've had times where I'm like, I don't want to come anymore. And she's like, I, I know, <laughs> like yeah. I can tell, and then I'll take a break and then I'll come back. And when I was younger, cognitive behavioral therapy was huge. And I, I did the stuff where I was like, 
on the floor, like spraying floor cleaner on my legs and like going to the Hudson River and like putting mud on on myself and like, yeah, like the cool stuff. And I honestly wish that I had had more of that as an adult. I think that that would have helped me more. And I often felt like I wasn't getting just like tangible, like advice for what to do in the moments of panic. Um, But then my, my current psychiatrist has has helped me a lot with just giving names to things and you know a big thing that I would do is is fortune tell and like I would predict the future and of course catastrophize it and she would be like okay but like what evidence do you have that this is what's going to happen and I'd be like well the past and she's like but that's not how the world works and you know like what you know and I'd be like I'm never going to be in a relationship again and she'd be like okay but looking at your history you have been in multiple long-term relationships and why would that not happen again and like things like that and just like also mind reading and trying not to do that and so for me it's always been super helpful to be like to be able to identify things to be able to identify okay so this is from my OCD this is from my anxiety this is mind reading this is catastrophizing and so the more the more that I can separate myself from my illness, the stronger that I feel. I'm I'm happy that you brought up suicide because I think it's important that people speak about it frankly. The question I like to ask people is, when were you able to identify that you were having thoughts that were problematic and might escalate? Because it sounded like you were able to say, okay, I need to get an intervention for this before this grows to a point where it's going to hurt my family. When I was four, I, I lied down in the middle of the street. So, yeah. So pretty much my entire life, I've been battling with my will to live I'd say I've never related to like these movies where like there's an apocalypse and people like struggle to survive I'm like I'd be out that's it for me you know like this is hard enough (laughs) with with plumbing I'm not gonna live in the forest so (laughs) I think it's always I've always had a on and off affair with with life (laughs) in a weird way but I never I've never acted on it. I've never, I've never tried to commit suicide. Um, I have self-harmed through, throughout the years, but that to me is very different in that that's a coping mechanism exactly. and the end result is to feel better and not exactly. to die. And I think that's something people don't really understand, but I, my will to live has, has gone up and down significantly over time. I remember when I was a little kid and I learned about dinosaurs, you know, most little kids like dinosaurs. I didn't like the dinosaur. I liked the fact that now I knew that there was this magical asteroid that could come and kill me and it wouldn't be my fault. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was like four or five and I was sitting there. I'd like kind of, I guess it was kind of a prayer that this asteroid would come and then I could be dead and my parents can be mad at me. Yeah, I remember that from like four or five years old. I think a lot of people think stuff like that. They just don't talk about it. Right. No, I feel, I mean, there's such, I feel such like sadness for that little girl. And then I also just feel so much sadness for my parents because I can't even imagine what that's like are you an only child i have an older sister and so that also created a difficult dynamic in the family because like i required a bit more attention and so that was hard for her so then there's guilt about that and you know i i recently have been trying to really absolve myself of guilt i used to live a very guilty life and now i'm sort of like what are my intentions if my intentions are not bad and my intentions aren't to hurt people then then i'm fine and that's kind of like the rule I try to live by now. Yeah, you're doing great. Thanks. (laughs) I kind of think that there's, again, like pretty much redemption in almost everything. If if you're not malicious, if you're not, you know, trying to hurt other people, 
because people make mistakes and there's mess ups and there's, you know, the biggest thing is like wanting help and wanting help, like getting help. And then also, you know, taking, taking responsibility when you need to. And I think that, you know, I see a lot of people struggling out there who like aren't even at the place of wanting help yet. So if you're there and you're, and you're trying, like that's amazing. And and I think it's commendable. For people that don't have supportive parents and I'm not putting this burden on you, but what are some things that you can recommend for people who are suffering from OCD or coping rather? Mm -hmm. My dog has been huge. I think if you're capable of getting an animal of some sort, I think that it is like very helpful. I think having something to care for and something to focus on other than yourself is, is really um, important. And also it's just like proven that petting an animal will just alleviate anxiety. It just makes you feel better. I also think volunteering can really help. I think if you feel like you're giving back in a way, um, and that can mean whatever it means to you. Like if helping out kids freaks you out and you don't want to do that, or you, you don't feel comfortable talking to old people, like there's so many different outlets. And like, for me, like I, I prefer animals. So I like volunteer with a dog rescue and like, I don't really have to talk to people during those two hours, but I'm still like out and I'm outside. I'm still walking. I'm engaging with, you know, with animals that like otherwise would be inside. And, you know, so I, I'm really a huge animal proponent. I think that, I think that it gets you outside of your head. I think that it can, it can really like ground you in a huge way. Um, I think, all the basics of like exercise and sleeping well, like prioritizing sleep in a big way. And then trying to, to make friendships that matter. You know, I think as you get older and as people are getting married later and later, your friends sort of become your family. So I think that friendships are, are worth the work. I think that they actually require as much work as romantic relationships, but in a lot of ways they're, they can be more meaningful because not that friendships ever unconditional, but it's like, you can, you can have multiple friends last a lifetime, you know, whereas like a lot of times in romantic love, you're just like looking for one person and then those big blow up and then you got to find another person, you know, like right. you can maintain friends in a way that like it's often harder to do with a that's romantic decided, relationship. Yeah. That's why I decided not to get married. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing figure out what works for you and, and to also like alleviate yourself of societal pressure and like know that what works for you is going to be super different than what works for everyone else, you know, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Is there a relationship moment that you were stuck in in the past, but now you've worked yourself to a place where you kind of have a different perspective on it? Um, I mean, I think that I spent most of my life feeling unlovable and that I needed to like trick someone into loving me and that if I had a partner, then I would, I, I didn't imagine a world where I could be happy without a partner. And I think that was detrimental and also made me not my best self always in relationships because I was, you know, so desperate to make a contract out, you know, to like lock them down and make sure that they're, you know, that I won and that they're with me and that I have this person and that it's like, and so that's obviously not the best way to approach relationships. (laughs) And I think that like, I, you know, I'm on, I'm actually like working on a book proposal that's all about, you know, dating with, with OCD and anxiety and, and sort of like that it's absolutely possible and that it's like everyone deserves love and that like you you can be in a successful relationship but I also think that like you have to get to a stability level in order to do that and there's been many times in my life where I've dated where I'm not in the place to date and you know kind of identifying what that is and and when are you actually able to to be a good partner and also 
be in a place where heartbreak won't destroy you, where you're strong enough that that won't like push you off a cliff. Cause it's awful. And even if you're a completely stable human being, it's still one of the worst things you can experience, but you have to kind of protect yourself and get to a place where like, even if this person leaves you, even if the worst case scenario happens, like you'll be okay. But now I put it on my animals. So I'm like, I can handle this, this, and this. But if my cat dies, I'm pretty sure I'm just packing up and moving to Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Um, I make those jokes too. <laughs> um, it's hard, I mean. But again, like with animals having like a shorter lifespan, to me it's like, well, how do I make her life happy now? And so I think that my OCD is very under control, but I would say does manifest itself the most when it comes to my dog and me being like needing reassurance that she's okay. And like, can I leave her? Is it okay to leave her? So the good that she brings me, there's also some, you know, turmoil, but I think that the good definitely always the bad. That said, I I don't know what will happen when she's gone. <laughs> you know, I have a podcast with my comedy partner um, that just came out a couple month weeks ago. It's called Just Between Us, um, and we talk about a lot of mental health stuff on the channel, on the podcast, and also kind of like you know our personal journeys of like loving ourselves and figuring out like what we're doing and who we are. And um, so, give that a listen if you like podcasts, which I assume you do if you're listening to this. What's your favorite episode of your own podcast? Just give people an idea. The one that came out last week is called The Fight, and on it, uh, Gabby and I get in an actual fight on air, and like our producer has to come in and like mediate it. And it, I just, I like that it just shows like the real side of friendship, and that like in that moment, I was really, really mad at her, and I couldn't, I could not control that, and I kind of like in the moment made a decision not to hide it because I, you know, I'm an actress, like I, I'm a bullshitter. We can all bullshit our way through life, but I was like, you know. The whole premise of this podcast is brutal honesty. So for me to pretend like I'm not furious is like yeah. a lie and misleading. And I got through the podcast. I got over it. But I was very vocal about like, I'm upset with you. This is why I'm upset with you. But like, let's move on. And, you know, because I think people need to I think it's healthier to be able to express those things to your friend than to not. So I'm kind of I'm kind of excited that we got to actually record that. Yeah, I was telling Adam earlier that I was mad at him. Yeah. And it's good. It felt good. You got to. You know, I think that the safest relationships are the ones where you can say that and you don't feel like they'll leave. You know, where you feel like you can express yourself and ex and that it doesn't mean like friendship over, relationship over. Like you, fe you feel safe enough to, to say when you're upset. Right. Too many people just hold back. Mm -hmm. But like Gabby has really taught me. She's one of the few people in my life where I, I can be completely honest with her. And so even if like she maybe upsets me more than other people, it's almost fine because I can tell her that and she doesn't blow it out into this huge thing. She just sort of like addresses the thing and then we move on. Right. Which is helpful. And it's rare too. Very rare. I get a few of those. Yeah. So you hold on to them like for dear life. <laughs> But the one question that's, that's, great. that's still you. to this day drives me nuts is when people just say, what's wrong with you? I think that was the biggest refrain throughout my childhood was just like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong? I was like, I don't know if I knew that. Well, I'm hoping that by educating more people in 20 years, people won't ask children that because <laughs> that's inappropriate. And it's it's like without knowledge and it's ignorant and it's hurtful. And so I think that's why it's so important. We all talk about this. So like, as you were saying, we know better how to talk about these things and how to approach things and to not ask a kid that cause that's, that's terrible. And I'm mad at them.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.